Well, my friends, good morning. Thank you. It's good to be with you again here at St. Lawrence on this wonderful Sunday. It's been too long, too long. In case you've forgotten who I am, my face, my inscription, my image, Father Cody Owens, somewhat newly assigned here in Muncie and very grateful to be able to be back with you today. Um, hmm, how are we going to do this homily? Let's do it this way. We are, uh, this is what I'm going to do. First, I am going to give you the key to understanding all the scriptures today, okay? First, I'm going to give you the key. Then, I'm going to sort of introduce the, the theme through a very brief story. And then we're going to go through the scriptures so that there's a hole to stick that key into. And then we're going to unlock them, okay? Sound good? You're a little bit less awake than I am, and I'm not a morning person, so I don't know what to make about that. Maybe more coffee next time. But this is the key. This is the key to understanding all the scriptures today. The key, and this doesn't happen very often, is our responsorial psalm. You remember the psalm? Get, of course you remember the psalm. I know you remember the psalm. I'm just, it's a rhetorical question. The psalm was, give the Lord glory and honor. Give the Lord glory and honor. And if you give the Lord glory and honor, if you can remember that psalm, then you've got the key to understanding the scriptures today. Okay? Put it in your pocket. You're going to need to use it later. This is the scripture, uh, pardon me, this is the theme that I have for the scriptures today. And something that I, I hope we can, yeah, do more than just know. We can sort of enter into a little bit. There's this wonderful book. It's uh, alongside Evil and Waugh's Brideshead Revisited. It's my favorite book of all time. They're just they're very neck and neck here. It was brought to my attention, and I was sort of like invited to read it because it was recommended by both Pope Francis and Pope Benedict. You know, so often in, you know, read some sort of Catholic news media or talk to someone, they always act like these two guys, ah, they must hate each other. Not at all, not at all. And actually, both of them recommended this book, that every Catholic should read this book. We need to understand the world, and we need to understand this book. And the book is called The Lord of the World. The Lord of the World. It was written by a convert to Catholicism. He was an Anglican priest who converted to Catholicism, became a Catholic priest, back in like the early 1900s. He wrote the book in 1908. And the Lord of the World, Robert Hugh Benson, the, uh, the sort of plot of the story is he was imagining what will the world be like in a hundred years? He was writing in 1908 and he was trying to think what will the world be like in a hundred years? So he has, you know, a long way off. They haven't even it's flown the first aircraft yet. There's a lot of things still to imagine. You know, the world was very different in 1908. But ultimately, when he wrote this story, this is what he imagined would happen. In a hundred years, he thought, we'll have progressed pretty far. Not just technologically, but as a society. He said, most suffering in the world would be taken care of. I mean, there would still be a little bit, right? We're still human beings, but it would be contained. Some sort of remedy would be provided. From where? From the government, mostly. We would experience some sort of unity throughout the entire world, heretofore never experienced, so he said. He's imagining 
a world where your occupation is provided by the state, your uh, food, the state, uh, transportation, all provided for, all free, no worries, uh, all healthcare, all relationship, everything provided, and very easily and simply. And do you know what he imagined with that? Everyone was pretty happy. Everyone was pretty happy. They had everything they wanted. It wasn't a perfect existence, but it was a pretty good existence. The only thing, so it seemed, that the world lost in this story was religion, was faith. It got explained away, uh, rationalized. They sort of lost touch with the story. They looked back in history and they thought, we're beyond that now, we're past it. And so at the very beginning of this story, at the very beginning of the Lord of the World, this Catholic priest, who is part of a very, very small church now, goes to the home of an older gentleman. And he goes to this gentleman and says, look, you've, you've lived through it. You've seen the last hundred years. Tell us what happened. Tell me the story. How did we get here and what should we be looking for? And this is what that older gentleman said in the story. He said, now, Father, we Catholics remember are losing. We have lost steadily for more than 50 years. No, Father, we are losing, and we shall go on losing, and I think we must even be ready for a catastrophe at any moment. And then the priest tried to interject and said, but, and then the old man cut him off and said, you think that weak for an old man on the edge of the grave. Well, it's what I think. I see no hope. In fact, no, I see no hope until our Lord comes back. No hope until uh, our Lord comes back. And some great hope in that. This is sort of the theme that matches our key. Now you've got a theme and you've got a key. Do you remember the key? I see nods, but I don't hear anything. I'm not actually, you don't need to yell it or anything. I just want to make sure you remember. Give the Lord glory and honor. Give the Lord glory and honor. And remember where your hope comes from. That's our theme. Now let's rip these readings up, shall we? The first comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet um, whose writings extend actually for several hundred years. So perhaps he and one of his disciples, another prophet, could put these together. They're writing in a time in Israel's history. This is the story. Uh, kind of, you know, give you a little context here. They're writing in a time in Israel's history where Israel is in exile. Uh, do you remember the story of the exile? It's a pretty simple story. It's not complicated, but it's important. See, for hundreds of years, generations upon generations, after Israel had been let out from Egypt, they experienced freedom. Yay! Everything is great. And they have their great king, David, eventually Solomon, who builds this great temple, but sort of leads the people astray. They have a civil war, and now this once great nation is split in two, split in two, and they hate each other. The north and the south, they can't stand each other. Well, God constantly reaches out to them because God doesn't care about their division. He loves them all. He wants them all brought back to himself, and so he sends out prophets, prophets whose job is not to, you know, scare. They're not boogie monsters, you know. They're, they're reaching out saying, come back, come back. You've, you've strayed away. You stopped doing the righteous things you did before, but it's not too late. Come back. You're wanted. You're desired. 
you're thought of. And eventually, you know, year by year, decision by decision, they say no. <laughs> they say no to God's invitation. And the north is eventually conquered by Assyria, and they're, you know, enslaved. Then Assyria and the southern kingdom are both conquered by Babylon. And Babylon had this idea in their mind. They had this idea that if they could go around the world to establish their empire, the one way they could unify everything is by killing every other sort of tradition and culture. So if you had a religion, sorry, it is not your religion anymore. If you had a language that you spoke, sounds really funny, but it's not your language anymore. You had stories, you had traditions, you had family. No, now you belong to the family of Babylon. And so they ripped people from their homes, from their neighborhoods, from their countries, and took them bound in chains thousands of miles back to Babylon. And Jerusalem was not spared this fate. The city burned, and the citizens were led away to another far-off land in exile. Now, this happened, as we said, as a consequence of their being unfaithful. Not so much a punishment, maybe a little bit, you know, you could say God had warned them and said, well, now this is going to happen. But just like if you tell a child, right, hey, don't touch the stove. And they say, why? And you say, because the stove is hot. And then they say, really? And then they touch the stove and burn their hand. The burning is not so much a punishment as a consequence. You should have listened, kid. And Israel, if only you would have heeded, <laughs> if only you would have heeded the Lord, perhaps you wouldn't have suffered this exile. But they didn't heed. They didn't listen. They were led way off into Babylon. And then they, they as you might imagine, kind of get sad. <laughs> everything they had before, everything that made them who they were, was gone. But they held on for one thing. One thing only they held on to. They knew that earlier on, God had made them a promise. And it wasn't a contingent promise. It wasn't like a, well, if you do this, then I'll give you something nice. You know, like you bribe a kid to clean your, their room or something. Like, well, if you clean your room, then you can have ice cream later. Ooh, uh. It's not that sort of promise. It was, Israel, I love you. And because I love you, I promise you, you will be mine. You will always be with me. I will always be with you. And specifically, he made a promise to David, who was their king. And he said, David... I will always make sure that you and one of your heirs, someone from your line, sits on a throne ruling over Israel forever. So they looked around themselves in Babylon. They saw no throne. They saw no heir. But they still had some sort of faith that God wasn't a liar. So they waited. They said, eventually he's going to give us this king. Now, they called the... You, do you know how kings were made back in ancient Israel? They were uh, anointed with oil. Some priest would come in with a bunch of oil and anoint them on their head, and the Psalms say it would drip down upon their beard. Uh, so they were anointed with oil. If you were a king, you were the anointed one. Do you know how Jewish people said anointed one in Hebrew? The word was Messiah. Messiah meant anointed one. It meant king. So they were waiting for this Messiah for this anointed one, for this king, all the way in Babylon, in this lousy, God-forsaken land. Well, eventually, Babylon gets conquered. You know, there's always a bigger bully. Uh, 
Babylon is conquered by Persia. And the king of Persia is Cyrus. And Cyrus becomes the overlord to these Jewish people. Now, I'm setting you up here. This is like the setup for the first reading. I know, I saw some of you, you heard the first line of the first reading and you practically jumped out of your chairs. You were so scandalized. I, I heard the, <gasps> I heard the shock. Yeah, that woke you up, didn't it? Well, I thank you for containing yourself for the sake of our divine liturgy here, but I want to make sure that now we have an opportunity to enter into that shock together. The first line of the first reading today was this. This is what the Jews heard from the prophet Isaiah. Thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus. Oh! <gasps> But God, how could you? What do you mean? Your anointed is who? Your Messiah is who? Cyrus. Yes, the king of the Persians. Your overlord, your slave driver, your master. He's your anointed. That's what the Jews said in response. Can you imagine? what that must have been like as a Jew who's been waiting for this promise to be fulfilled and all of a sudden it's the king of the Persians who's the anointed one? What's the first question you would ask? Because I can tell you the first question I'd ask. Why? Why him? Why him? Well, God tells them why. This is the first reading. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, okay, it's for you, Israel, my chosen one, I have called you Cyrus by your name, giving you a title, though you knew me not. Why, Lord? Why him? Because I am the Lord, and there is no other God besides me. Cyrus, you look weak. Well, it is I who arm you. Cyrus, it seems that you have nothing. Well, I give you everything, so that from the rising to the setting of the sun, People may know that there is none besides me. I name you, Cyrus, my anointed, so that everyone will know that I am the Lord. There is no other. If you've got a good thing, it comes from God. If you look, I mean, you can imagine Israel, right, who looks at this anointed Cyrus and says, oh my goodness, are you trying to tell me that even Cyrus, and God would say, yes, even Cyrus is under my control. Even Cyrus is made strong by me. I'm not just about this little sect of the world. I am about all of the world. And I will make sure that all the world knows that I am the Lord. There is no other. That's our first reading. I already told you the psalm. We're not going to do the second reading because I don't want to. But here's the gospel. Bearing in mind our key, bearing in mind our theme, bearing in mind what we learned in the first reading, here's our gospel. The Pharisees went off and they plotted how they might entrap Jesus in speech. Mm, nasty Pharisees. They sent their disciples to him with the Herodians. This already should be like bells going off in your head because Herodians and Pharisees hated each other. This would be like Democrats and Republicans agreeing that there's some person that they hate so much that they're both going to gang up on him. That's what's going on here. Now, I said Democrats and Republicans. This is not a political homily, so get the parties out of your mind. Now we're going back into the Scriptures, okay? The Pharisees and Herodians try to entrap Jesus, and they begin by flattering him. 
They approach Jesus and say, oh, teacher, we know that you are a truthful man, so concerned with the truth are you, and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Everyone agrees, Jesus, you're the best truth teller there is. You are the most truthy. Now, we are also aware that you don't regard anyone's opinion. You're not concerned with opinion. We've all been offended by you, Jesus, because all you do is tell the truth. Now, tell us, what's your opinion? Is it lawful to pay the census tax to Caesar or not? This is a trick question. See, the census tax is a, a sort of uh, persnickety issue in Jewish circles. If Jesus says, yeah, pay the census tax, what's it matter to me? Then all of a sudden, all these Pharisees and Herodians can turn to their people and say, you see, we told you. He doesn't care about you. He undermines God. He's impious. He's unfaithful. And he wants you to pay your tax to Caesar. <laughs> but if he says, no, you shouldn't pay the census tax because we're concerned about God, then they can say to Pilate and all of the Roman centurions, see, we told you he's a rabble rouser. He doesn't care about the state. He's a danger and a menace to society. He's corrupting the youth. Get him out of here. It seems Jesus is trapped. However, he responds very prudently. He says, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? He sees through to their hearts and then says, oh, this is, this is where he gets them. Show me the coin that pays the census tax. Go ahead, show it to me. Now, at this point in the Gospel, Jesus has already had his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. He's been hailed as Messiah. Remember what Messiah means? Don't look now, but you're learning. He, he is hailed as Messiah. He is coming to Jerusalem. And already, you know, he's preparing for his death that will happen in only a few days. But he's being scrutinized now. Like every Passover lamb is scrutinized by the priests. Jesus is scrutinized by these Pharisees. They're inside the temple. Now, you may remember another scene from the Gospel where Jesus was inside the temple where it didn't go so well. It wasn't a super nice memory for people. Do you remember when Jesus was flipping tables over and driving out animals and stuff? Do you remember who those tables belonged to? They belonged to the money changers. Hmm, that's an interesting profession. Why would you have money changers in the temple? I'll tell you why. Because you were not allowed by commandment to have some sort of idol, some sort of graven image inside the temple of the Lord. Well, hmm, yeah. What does a, a census tax coin look like? Ooh, it's a graven image. So inside the temple, Jesus turns to these very pious Pharisees and says, hey, uh, why don't you give me one of those coins that you pay the census tax with? And so they reach into their pocket and they pull it out. And you can almost imagine the crowd around going, ooh, like this is a burn. Jesus got him. But then he, he goes on beyond that. He says, everyone sees there's an image. He says, whose image is this? And they say, Caesar. And he says, good, then you render unto Caesar what's Caesar's, but you render unto God what is God's. Now, here's the kicker. The coin might have Caesar's image on it, but perhaps you've heard this before. Whose image was Caesar made in? Yeah, God's. 
all mankind, men and women who have ever existed, they all are made in God's image and likeness. So perhaps this coin belongs to Caesar, but Caesar belongs to God. What all belongs to God, do you think? Everything. Every single thing. Think of a thing, and it already belongs to God. God is the giver, and if you've found a good gift, it is only good, and it's only a gift because it's been made and given by the giver. Father, are you saying that Caesar even belongs to God? Yes, I am. Caesar, just as Cyrus, the Persian king, because all things go back to God. Every one goes back to God. This is very important. Now we have our keyhole. Let's put in the key, shall we? Remember the key? Give the Lord glory and honor. If you want to understand what these scriptures are about, this is what they're about. Why? Why would God use Cyrus? Why would God claim Caesar? Can God just claim anyone? Absolutely he can. Absolutely he can. Because all glory... All honor belongs to him and to no other person. If in your life you're looking out at all of the things going on in the world, and I don't know how many times we can hear the word chaos before it starts to just lose its meaning, if in every situation you can look at the choices we have to make and the people that we like or strongly dislike one way or the other, don't you forget that all glory, all honor belongs to God. And that if he can use Cyrus, if he can use Caesar, <laughs> he can use anybody. Father, certainly not that person. No, he could never use him. Are you so sure? Why? He's used others before, and all belong to him. So long as all glory and all honor goes back to him, there's nothing that he can't do. And this, my friends, is our hope. This doesn't let us off the hook. It's not like saying, well, it doesn't matter. It's all going to go back to God. It does matter. It mattered to Israel. It mattered to Jesus. It certainly matters to us as well. We have the weight of responsibility that comes with the dignity of being a human being. But we also have one hope. That hope, I told you from the story before, is our Lord. It's Jesus himself in every situation it's always the hope of the promise. Israel had hope. They had hope in a Messiah. They were waiting for an anointed one. At first it came through Cyrus, but later it came through God himself coming back. It appeared in the temple. It mocked the graven image, but it offered the image and the one whose image it was back to the Father together. And he can do the same thing for us. Don't doubt it for a second. Not for a second. If you look out into this world, if you're overwhelmed, if you're, you know, losing your hair like I am, maybe you've already lost your hair. Give me a few years. I'll be there. Then just remember, all glory, all honor back to the Lord. And let me tell you the end of this story. It's the end of that story and that story. It's the end of the Lord of the world. It's the end of your story. Every story ends exactly the same way because it all starts the same way. It ends this way. Spoiler alert. So passed this world and the glory of it. Eventually, all of this comes to an end. Pray God. 
and praise God as we prepare for the Feast of Christ the King. But all real glory, all real honor goes back to Him. And that's a good thing to hope for. Amen.